All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to today's Google Search Central SEO Office Hours Hangout. My name is John Mueller. I'm a search advocate here at Google in Switzerland. And part of what we do are these office hour sessions where people can jump in and ask their questions around their websites. And we can try to find some answers. Um, I have a bunch of things submitted on YouTube, which we can go through. But it also looks like we have a ton of people raising hands. So let's get started there. Uh, let's see. Isabel, you're up first. <clears throat> Hello. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my question is about the crawling of our website. Um, we have different number from the crawling of the um, search console um, in our server log. For instance, we have three times the um, number of the crawling from Google in our server, and in search console we have one of the three bar. Could be possible maybe we have something wrong or we don't identificate the the google bot because the numbers are different i i think the numbers would al always be different um just because of the the way that uh the on, on the in search console we report on all crawls that go through the infrastructure of googlebot uh, mm -hmm. But that also includes other types of requests. So uh, for example, I think the ads bot also uses the Googlebot infrastructure, uh, those kind of things. And uh, they have different user agents. So if you look at your server logs and only look at the Googlebot user agent that we use for web search, those numbers will never match what we show in, in But we console. have more in our server log than in Google Search Console. OK, if you have more in your server logs, then to me, that would sound like either you have multiple sites combined in, in the server logs, um, or you're also counting requests by other people who use the same user agent. Uh, okay. So the, the user agent isn't something that is locked and only limited to Googlebot. Anyone can say, like, I am Googlebot, uh, but even if they're not Googlebot. Uh, so there is one way to double check that with the IP address. And I think we have that in, in our help center, how to kind of double check that it's really a Googlebot. OK. OK. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I, I would double check that. OK. Cool. Uh, Kwarov. Hey, John. Uh, I have a question in mind. Uh, we have a website. And uh, from last three to four months, uh, we have been working on Google Web Stories. Uh, it was going very well till last month, 5th March, actually. We were having some around 400 to 500 uh, real-time users coming from Google Discover on our Web Stories. But suddenly, we saw a instant drop in our visitors from Google Discover. And our Search Console is not even showing any errors. So what could be possible possible reason for that? I, I don't think there needs to be any specific reason for, for that, because especially with Discover, it's something that we would consider to be additional traffic to a website. And it's something that can change very quickly. And um, anecdotally, I've seen that from, or I've heard that from, from sites in these office hours that sometimes they get a lot of traffic from Discover, and then suddenly it goes away, and then it comes back again. 
so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything technically wrong. It might just be that in Discover, things have slightly changed, and then suddenly you get more traffic, or suddenly you get less traffic. Uh, we do have uh, a bunch of policies that apply to content that we show in, in Google Discover. And I would double check those, just to make sure that you're not accidentally touching on any of those areas. Um, that, that includes things. I, I, I don't know offhand, but uh, I, I think some, something around the lines of like clickbaity content, for example, uh, those kind of things. But I, I would double check those guidelines to make sure that you're all in line there. But even if everything is in line with the guidelines, it can be that suddenly you get a lot of traffic from Discover, and then suddenly you get a lot, a lot less traffic. No, I didn't mean that. Uh, not suddenly we got it. We are having it constantly for almost three to four months uh, from when we started working on web stories. Four to 500 of real-time visitors we had. We didn't change any part of our content or uh, the uh, what we call. Uh, we didn't try anything new over there. Everything was as we had uh, done before. But we saw an instant drop. Yeah. That... Not even that uh, it got less and less. Instantly, yeah. there were no visitors. Yeah, that's an anecdotally that's that's what I hear from people that it it goes from you get a lot of traffic and then suddenly goes to almost nothing. Okay. Uh, I sorry I don't have any kind of better tip in in that regard. I I think Discover is something that is is worthwhile trying out and seeing what you can do there, but it is something. Because of its nature, it's it's not tied to specific people searching, so it's a lot harder to kind of work on it and have it in a persistent state. Okay. Cool. Okay, Ritu. Hello. Hi. I'm I cannot hear you so well. But maybe it will get better. Now I'm, now I'm audible? A little bit, yeah. Uh, so I have a question related to uh, uh, old domain to like uh, when we redirect an old domain to new domain. And this time, uh, like uh, uh, for the backlinks, uh, the backlinks we are creating for the old domain. Uh, is there, uh, they are auditable? Like uh, when we audit, when we create, uh, when it will redirect to new domain, after that, if we uh, audit the old domain backlinks which we created for old domain, that will be auditable? Um, I, I think they, they would show in Search Console. I mean, in, in Search Console, you would see. A, a sample of the links to your website. And if they redirect through an, another domain, then I think we would still show that in Search Console. Sometimes I, I think we show that in between state, that it's like you have a link through this other website. OK, uh, in the option like link. But after redirection, is it possible? Then we redirect to a new domain. Like we can view for the old domain also. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so sometimes sites change domains. 
I would not recommend doing that regularly. I I think it, every domain move that you make, it it brings challenges and possible problems. But uh, if if you need to change your domain name, that that happens. Yeah. So one more question, like uh, uh, my website, uh, like uh, some uh, spammy website are regularly copying our content, like uh, spammy, like which having very low domain authority, that type of website are copying the blog content. So we are doing like uh, manual uh, for delisting those URLs from Google SCRP. We are just manually submitting the request to Google by the form. Uh, after that, uh, our URLs are delisting from Google SEO, but is it the right way to get rid from these type of activities? Or we can go for any alternate option for this, like uh, uh, in further, we will not see such type of family activities for on our website. How, how do you mean alternate process? So, like very spammy, like which is having low authority, toxic backlinks. We are getting so many toxic backlinks. Like most of the websites are copying our content. Our whole content is copying on our website. And okay. then we are delisting for delisting them from Google SCRP. We are submitting the request to Google. Uh, then they are manually removing their domain from like Google SCRP. So is it the effective way? to get rid from these type of activities or we can go for any other alternate option or any paid or free option yeah. which is available we can so, also so i th i think if if another site is copying your copyrighted content then probably the dmca uh form i i think that that you're using is is the right way yeah, to go actually, there actually actually uh, yeah we have taken the plan also earlier but for a limited time because uh plan is very expensive for it. So that's why we are thinking ki, uh, we should uh, delist the URLs manually. So we are thinking ki if uh, we get any other option like for this instead of premium plans. I, I don't think we have any kind of paid plans or anything like that. Okay. Uh, so the DMCA process, if, if you, that applies to your, your case, that should be mm -hmm. something that that is available for free. You can just use it directly in Search Console, or I don't know wh wherever the form is. Uh, okay. So that that might be one approach. The DMCA process is a legal process, uh, and mm -hmm. I can't give you legal advice. So you might mm -hmm. have to check with a lawyer to see if it's appropriate. Uh, the other thing that you could do if you wanted to is to use the disavow backlinks tool. Uh, if if you're worried about those links, for for the most part, if it's a random spammy site, I would not worry about it. I would not use the disavow backlinks tool because it's just extra work. There will be no effect of toxic backlinks on our website. No, so I, like, I can't me. imagine. No. Okay. Uh, so one more question. Uh, like the, our website is going through migration process. So we have uh, followed checklists like uh, which we should consider before migration process, and uh, we followed and we worked on it. And uh, speed of it, we are uh, worried about that. Uh, certainly, like we will get a, a traffic loss for the website. Is there any chances uh, we'll get a traffic loss? A website will have a traffic loss in 
small amount or like it's always possible. Uh, so with with migrations, when you're moving from one domain to another, it's there's always a period of fluctuation in between. And usually, if you're following the the guide that we have, then it's it's a minimal fluctuation, but uh, it's it can still happen. Is it enough to uh, which checklist we are following, like uh, which are available in search engine land, search engine? Is it enough for it, like uh, to get rid from traffic loss, like minimal amount of traffic loss, to please? Yeah. Is it enough for so it, or we should go? We we have uh, a, a checklist in in the search developer documentation uh, for site moves, okay. and I I would double check that. Okay. Thank you so much, sir. Sure. For your answer. John, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I offer Ritu uh, another suggestion here about the DMCA? And yeah. and and much like you, I, I'm not offering legal advice, but but there is there is another path, another remedy that you can take, which is um, you can find out who the host is. Uh, there's a site that I believe is called WhoIsHostingThis.com. Uh, you can find who the host is. And they generally have a department that you can reach out to with an email address such as legal at whatever the name is or abuse at. They have these departments and you can reach out to them and say that someone is infringing on your content, but you need to give them backup um, documentation. Uh, and uh, generally they, they will not ignore this. There's an area of law called safe harbor. Um, in which you know the, that means that hosts can't moderate everything that they're hosting, um, but they if if they're told enough times about infringements and you give them legitimate uh, documentation, um, they're almost bound to take it down. The problem is that sometimes becomes a game of whack-a-mole where people change hosts, um, but uh, it takes time and eventually these people, if they are infringing on your content, they'll give up and they'll stop doing it. Uh, so thank you so much for the, for your response. Like, can you share the link with the on chat box for this? Like, which you share, it would be good. Um, cool. Yeah, that that definitely also makes sense. Um, let's see, Joseph. Yes. Hello, John. Hi. Uh, we have a content publishing website since two thousand and nine, uh, and we experienced. Uh, experienced a bad migration in uh, 2000 and 2020 where we uh, encountered a huge drop in uh, organic traffic so the question here is that uh, we had a lot of broken links so uh, we used the 301 redirect to redirect uh, these these broken links to the original articles uh, but what we did in uh, robots.txt uh, we, dis we disallowed these links so that the crawling budget won't be uh, gone on uh, crawling these 404 pages. So uh, the main thing here, uh, if we fixed all these redirects, if we redirected to the same article with the proper name, uh, can we remove uh, can we remove these links from the robots.txt? And how much time does it take to actually be considered by Google? Um, so if if the page is blocked in the robot's text, we wouldn't be able to see the redirect. So if you set up a redirect, you you would need to remove that block in the robot's text. Um, 
with regards to the time that takes, I there, there is no specific time because we don't crawl all pages with the same speed. Uh, so some some pages we may pick up within a few hours, and other pages might take several months to be recrawled. Uh, so that's I, I think kind of tricky. The other thing I I think worth mentioning here is. If this is a, from a migration that is two years back now, then yes. I, I don't think you would get much value out of just making those 404 links kind of show content now. I, I can't imagine that that would be the reason why, why a website would be getting significantly less traffic, um, mostly because it's, it's I mean, you, and unless unless these pages are the the most important pages of your website, but then you you would have noticed that. Uh, but if these are just generic pages on a on a bigger website, then I I can't imagine that the overall traffic to a website would drop because they were no longer available. Okay. Uh, another question about the optimal uh, content length on a page. Uh, you know, we have uh, encountered many blog posts that talk about. Uh, let's say we need to have uh, uh, around uh, 100 or 1,000 uh, words per page. So what's the optimal uh, content length? I don't think there is one. So, some pages okay. are very short. Some pages are very long. It, it kind of depends on, on the amount of information that you want to give users. There is this term uh, propagating now, uh, the thin content. Uh, is it applic applicable by Google or not? Um, usually, that applies more to, to the overall website. So it's not so okay. much that one page doesn't have enough content. It's more that the, the website overall is, is very light on actual information. Uh, oh, okay. So I, I wouldn't like use the, the word count as a way to, to recognize that. I, I think sometimes the word count is useful for you to look at a larger website overall and to try to find areas where maybe you, you could be doing better. But mm. I wouldn't use it as, as a metric to guide kind of like the specific things that you do on a website. Mm, OK. OK, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, Rob. Hi, John. Thanks for the time. Um, my question pertains to uh, uh, it's a crawling question pertaining to discovered, not indexed. Um, we run a two-sided marketplace since 2013 that's fairly well established. We have about 70,000 pages, and about 70% of those are generally in the index. And then there's kind of this budget that uh, uh, crawls the new pages that get created, and those we see movement on that so that uh, old pages go out and new pages come on. Um, at the same time, we're also writing blog entries, um, kind of from our editorial team. And to uh, kind of get those to the top of the queue, we always use this request indexing on those, uh, so they'll go quicker. We add them to the sitemap as well, but we find uh, that we write them, and then we want them to get on to the Google as quick as possible. Um, as, as we've kind of been growing over the last year and we have more content on our site, we've seen that that sometimes doesn't work as well for the new blog entries, and they also sit in this discovered not index queue for a longer time. Is there anything we can do to, uh, like, internal links or something? Is it, is it content-based, or do we just have to live with the fact that some of our blogs might not make it into the index? 
Yeah. I, I think overall, it's it's kind of normal that we don't index everything on a website. Uh, so that can happen to kind of the, the entries you have on the site and also the blog posts on the site. It's not tied to a specific kind of content. Um, I, I think using the uh, inspector L tool to submit them to indexing is, is fine. It definitely co doesn't cause any problems. Um, but I would also try to find ways to make those pages kind of as clear as possible that you care about them. Uh, so essentially, with internal linking is, is a good way to do that, to, to really make sure that from your home page, you're saying, like, here are the five new blog posts, and you link to them directly so that it's easy for, uh, for Googlebot, when we crawl and index your home page, to see, oh, there's something new, and it's linked from the home page. So maybe it's important. Maybe we should go off and, and look at it. OK, so if it's linked from the home page, it's more likely that Google sees it as important than if we just add it and it kind of gets added on a sub blog page. Yeah. We... yeah. OK. Definitely. OK, that helps. Yeah. Thank just you. Ma making it as obvious as possible for us to, to figure out. OK, to see um, that. There's also, usually, if, if you have a blog section on your site, you also have RSS feeds. And uh, if, if you have that set up, I would also submit those to Google in, in Search Console. Uh, just because RSS feeds tend to focus more on the newer content, and that kind of helps us to pick those up a little bit faster. So we use them um, similar to, to sitemap files, but so sometimes RSS feeds are, are a bit easier for us to pick up. So, OK, that's a good hint. I'll, I can implement that on the Google Search Console side. Cool. Cool. Thanks for your time. Sure. Uh, Rohan. All right. Um, hey, John, thank you so much for taking on my question here. So I'm one of the uh, moderators at Reddit. And ever since uh, GPT-3-based AI writing tools started to get advertised, uh, our community is having a debate over whether or not to use them. Although our stance is mostly against it, but we are trying, or maybe I should say, we are struggling to see what is Google's official position um, on the same, someone had posted on Reddit uh, if they should be using these AI content writing tools, to which you responded no, but you had no um, further explanation to it. And then you had also posted some cryptic tweets about it. So I'm just trying to understand <laughs> more that how does Google react to websites uh, hosting AI-written content? And uh, what is your suggestion for all of us? Yeah. So, so for us, these would essentially still fall into the category of automatically generated content, uh, which, which is something that we've had in, in the Webmaster Guidelines since almost the beginning, I think. And uh, people have been automatically generating content in, in lots of different ways. And for us, if you're using machine learning tools to kind of generate your content, it's essentially the same as if you're just, I don't know, shuffling words around or looking up synonyms or doing kind of the translation tricks that people used to do, uh, those kind of things. My, my suspicion is that maybe the quality of content is a little bit better than kind of the, the really old school tools. But for us, it's still automatically generated content. And uh, that means for us, it's still against the Webmaster Guide. So we would consider that to be spam. Uh, so so just to follow up on that, are you saying that Google is able to 
understand the difference between human and AI content? I I can't claim that, but uh, I mean for okay. for us, if if we see that something is automatically generated, then the the WebSpam team can definitely take action on that, and I. Like I, I don't know how, how the future will evolve there, but I imagine like with any of these other technologies, there will be a little bit of a, a cat and mouse game where sometimes people do something and they get away with it and then the web spam team catches up and kind of solves that issue on a broader scale. Uh, but uh, from, from our recommendation, we, we still see it as automatically generated content. I think I don't know, over time, maybe this is something that will evolve in that it will become more of a tool for people, kind of, kind of like you would use machine translation as a basis for creating a translated version of a website, but you still essentially work through it manually. And maybe over time, these AI tools will evolve in that direction that you use them to kind of be more efficient in your writing or to um, make sure that you're writing in a proper way, kind of like the, the spelling and the grammar checking tools, which are also based on machine learning. Um, but I don't know what, what the future brings there. So you're saying currently it's not there yet? I, I mean, currently it's, it's all against the webmaster guidelines. So from our point of view, if we were to run across something like that, if the web spam team were to see it, they, they would see it as spam. Got it, got it. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, all right, Viola. Uh, yes, good morning. Um, I would like to ask you, uh, does using an HTML tags such as pan or class into an H1 uh, can affect my website from a SEO point of view? I don't think so. I, I mean, my my understanding is that we we would still see that as a heading and as long as it's a valid heading we would be able to use that i don't know from a technically kind of valid html point of view if that's still the correct way to do a heading but from from our point of view we would probably just see that as a heading okay so it's not a problem if a I want to make animation for my H1. I use a span class because uh, we think that our website uh, go down in the ranking for some for this reason and others in reality. So that I don't know if maybe it's better to have a clean H1 without anything inside or. I I think I can't imagine that a website would drop in visibility because of okay. that. Yeah. And my second question is, uh, does a low rating mobile results uh, on Google page speed, like LCP, FID, uh, might have affected our website rank after the introduction of the new algorithm last summer? Because uh, we were like uh, the fourth around uh, my city, okay, if I check a web agency or a keyword that we... Uh, and so after the introduction uh, of this algorithm and uh, going on uh, Google Search Console, we find out that our these parameters like LCP, FID for, for mobile has a 
bad rating like uh, 48, not for desktop, that is 90, so it's okay. Uh, so could be this the problem of our... Uh... Could be. It's, it's hard to say just based on that. So I, I, I think that there's maybe two things to, to watch out for. Uh, the, the number that you gave me sounds like the PageSpeed Insights score that, that is generated, I think, on, on desktop and mobile. Um, kind of that number from zero to one hundred, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we we don't use that in in search for the rankings. Uh, we use the the core web vitals, um, the where, where there is LCP, FID, and CLS, I think, and uh, those are based on, or or the the metrics that we use are based on what users actually see. Uh, so if you go into Search Console, there's the Core Web Vitals report, and that yeah. should show you the those numbers if it's within good or bad, kind of in those ranges. Uh, but if I go on uh, Google Search Console on uh, Core Web Vitals, okay, mm -hmm. uh, it said to me uh, that the data uh, for from the last uh, ninety days. Uh, are not uh, uh, enough uh, for this type of uh, device. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then in that case, it's it's not due to that. So we we have to have enough data that we we can collect from users to be able to understand the status oh. of the core web vitals for the site. Uh, but uh, especially for smaller sites, we we might not have enough data, and okay. uh, then we would not use that as a factor there. So okay. e even if the page speed insight score is bad, uh, that isn't something that we would use. We would only use it if we really have data from users that tell us that it's actually slow in practice. Uh, okay. So I, I would use that score as a way to kind of prepare for when you have more traffic uh, and have those numbers. But it, it wouldn't be the reason why your website would drop. Okay, uh, so we have to find the reason <laughs> yeah. in another way. Okay, I understand. Okay. okay, thank you very much. Cool, sure. Um, let me go through some of the submitted questions, and I have more time afterwards to go through like all of the people with the raised hands as well here. Uh, so stick around. Let's see. Um, the first question I have here is, does it make a difference if a navigational link is visible on desktop but hidden on mobile? Uh, can eventually non-visible navigational links be considered less relevant as visible ones? Uh, so I, I suspect by hidden on mobile, it means it's not removed on mobile, but rather just not visible directly. And as long as the link is within the HTML of the page, for us, that's fine. For crawling, we can still pass signals to those links. All of that is fine. Uh, if, on the other hand, the link is not even in the HTML on mobile, and we crawl the site with mobile-first indexing, then we would not see that link at all. Uh, so that's, I, I think, the important distinction to, to think about there. Uh, you can check this in Search Console with the Inspect URL tool uh, to try to fetch that page and to see if in the HTML the link is actually still there. If the link is there, then that should be fine. Uh, 
we have some shortcuts on our website. Uh, so these are some German shortcuts like IDR or UA uh, or ZBSP. Oh, it's so awkward to, to read these German shortcuts in English. Uh, is, is this readable for Google, or should we avoid shortcuts uh, on our website? Um, so from Kind of from a practical point of view, if this is something that you're trying to rank for, then I would make it as clear as possible what you're trying to rank for. Uh, but these are essentially just shortcuts that you would use in writing on a normal page. And the content that you want to rank for is essentially not the shortcuts, but kind of like what's around the shortcuts. And from that point of view, I would not worry about this. Uh, if, if this is normal language usage, then it, it is what it is. It is what users expect. They can read it. They can understand it. And that's, that's essentially fine from our point of view. Uh, we're seeing competitors showing up in search results with aggregate rating and high price, low price, rich results used on e-commerce product category pages. Uh, based on the documentation, it looks like this is not an approved use case. So I wanted to check and verify if I'm understanding the documentation correctly and if this is something that we should be working on as well. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, not everyone implements things the way that we have it documented, uh, whether that's on purpose, that they're doing things in ways that we don't want them to do, or whether it's accidentally just implemented incorrectly. It's sometimes hard to tell. Uh, but if you're looking at the documentation and it's clear to you how you should be doing it, then I would try to do it that way and not uh, kind of the way that we, we say not to use it. So especially for category pages, I, I think our guidance is still that you should not be using uh, this kind of structured data there because it's not the same product. It's a bunch of different products. Uh, so I, I would try to avoid that. Uh, we recently started a chat tool as a help service. The button is a small bubble in the bottom left corner on mobile. Uh, it covers a bit of content because the bubble is an overlay. Uh, will we have a ranking problem because of, the, because of a usability problem? Uh, should we have an additional close button? Uh, the bubble is visible on all pages, also when users change pages. Uh, so I don't know about the usability side. I can't really give you advice there. Uh, but with regards to uh, kind of searches, general ranking guidelines there, I think there are two aspects that could come into play. And it's something where you probably have to make a judgment call on, on your side. Uh, on the one hand, there is the inter intrusive interstitial guidelines that we have. Uh, where if you have an interstitial on your pages that is intrusive for users, then that's something that we would recommend avoiding. That's a part of the page experience ranking factor. And uh, it's something where we, we don't have like a fixed number of pixels or anything like that, which we would say would be intrusive. And my guess is if you have a chat bubble in the corner, then that would not be uh, considered intrusive by your users. Uh, the other aspect is around the Core Web Vitals. Uh, so in particular, I think the, the LCP and maybe the content layout shift, so the time it takes to load the page and if the content shifts around while that page is loading. Uh, depending on how you have implemented this uh, kind of chat bubble in the corner, that might be something that would be playing a role. 
And uh, that's something which probably you can test, where you turn that on and off, and you try it out in your browser to see what is the effect there. Uh, the effect that you see in your browser is kind of a different effect than users might see, but it gives you a bit of guidance. Uh, so in particular, for Core Web Vitals, we use the, the metrics that users see, which we call field data, in the Chrome user experience report. And uh, if you test it yourself, we would consider that to be lab data, which might be slightly different than from what an average user would see. Uh, primarily, this is due to maybe the different connections that users have or different devices, the capabilities, how, how fast they are, how much RAM they have, uh, those kind of differences. But usually, if you turn it on and off, you, you will quickly see, is there an actual difference or not? And if there is a difference, then you kind of have to make a judgment call. Is this something I want to worry about or not? Or maybe it's something that you just track for a while to double check. So those are kind of the, the two primary things that come into play. Another one that uh, we've seen in the past, which is kind of a weird edge case, specifically around these uh, chat uh, things that, that sometimes run with JavaScript in the corner is that uh, oftentimes they will use the page title as a way to signal that actually there's a chat message waiting for you. It'll add something like a 1 to the page title uh, if some chat operator is waiting for you to kind of chat with them, essentially. And if you use JavaScript to change the page title, then that is something that we could pick up when we render the page. And we have seen cases where suddenly all pages of a website have a 1 attached to the title, which comes from one of these chat tools. Uh, so that's something to, to watch out for and maybe turn off if you have a chance to kind of uh, adjust that there. Um, let's see. In Search Console, we have Search Appearance Filter that shows AMP articles that appear in Search. Uh, that's all fine, but the URLs that appear under AMP Article Filter are non-AMP URLs. The Search Console show the canonical for those URLs, or is this a reporting issue? Uh, so in general, in Search Console, we do try to show the canonical URLs in the performance report. Uh, it's not. 100% perfect, because there are certain kinds of URLs that we, we report on slightly differently. Uh, but uh, we, we do try to show, for the most part, the canonical URL. So I would not be surprised if you see the canonical URL in the general performance report on AMP. Um, I believe there's also a separate AMP report, which you can double check. But I'm not sure if that's there or not. I don't know confused right now. Uh, but uh, that, that might also be one place to check. Uh, but in any case, I, I would not see that as kind of a, an issue on your side if we're showing the canonical URLs there. That's kind of the, the way we, we wanted to do that in Search Console. And again, it's not 100% it's not consistent, because some types of search appearances we, we show the way that we show them. Uh, sometimes they also include the, the hash in the URL if we're kind of including a, a link to a specific section of a page. Um, so it's, I, I would say, to a large part canonical, but not 100% sure. Um, let's see, question about crawling. I recently redesigned my website and changed the way I list my blog posts and other pages from pages 1, 2, 3, 4 to a View More button. Uh, can Google still crawl the ones that are not shown on the main blog page? What is the best practice? 
Um, if not, let's say those pages are not important when it comes to search and traffic, would the whole site as a whole be affected when it comes to how relevant it is for the topic uh, for Google? Uh, so it, on, on the one hand, it depends a bit on how you have that implemented. The a View More button could be implemented as a button that does something with JavaScript. And those kind of buttons, we would not be able to crawl through and actually see more content there. On the other hand, you could also implement a View More button essentially as a link to kind of page two of those results, or from page two to page three. And if it's implemented as a link, we would follow it as a link, even if it doesn't have like a label that says page two on it. Uh, so that's, I, I think, the first thing to double check. Is it actually something that can be crawled or not? And with regards to kind of like if it can't be crawled, uh, then usually what would happen here is we would focus primarily on the, the blog posts that would be linked directly from those pages. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's something where we probably would keep the old blog posts in our index because we've seen them and index them at some point. But we will probably focus on the, the ones that are currently there. One way you can help to mitigate this is if you cross-link your blog posts as well. Uh, so sometimes that is done with category pages or kind of these tag pages that people add. Uh, sometimes uh, blogs have a mechanism for linking to related blog posts. And all of those kind of mechanisms add more internal linking to a site. And that make it possible that even if we initially just see the first page of the results from your blog, we would still be able to crawl to the rest of your website. And one way you can double check this is to use a local crawler. Uh, there are various uh, third-party crawling tools available. And you, if you crawl your website and you see that, oh, it only picks up five blog posts, then probably like, those are the five blog posts that are findable. On the other hand, if it goes through those five blog posts and then finds a bunch more and a bunch more, then you can be pretty sure that Googlebot will be able to crawl the rest of the site as well. Uh, to what degree does Google honor the robots text? I'm working on a new version of my website that's currently blocked with robots file, and I intend to use robots text to block indexing of some URLs that are important for usability but not for search engines. Uh, so I want to understand if that's okay. Uh, that's perfectly fine. Uh, so when we we recognize disallow entries in a robots text file, we will absolutely follow those. Uh, the the only kind of situation I've seen where that did not work is where we were not able to process the robots text file properly. Uh, but if we can process the robots text file properly, if it's properly formatted, then we will absolutely stick to, to that when it comes to crawling. Uh, another caveat there is usually we update the robots text files maybe once a day, depending on the website. Uh, so if you change your robots text file now, it might take a day until it takes effect. Uh, with regards to blocking crawling, so, so you mentioned blocking indexing. Uh, but essentially, robots text file would block crawling. Uh, so if you block crawling of pages that are important for usability but not for search engines, usually that's fine. What would happen or could happen is that we would index the URL without the content. So if you do a site query for those specific URLs, you would still see it. Uh, but 
if the content is on your crawlable pages, then for any normal query that people do, when they search for a specific term on your pages, we will be able to focus on the pages that are actually indexed and crawled and show those in the search results. So from, from that point of view, that's all fine. Um, let's see. Uh, for example, Fireworks is one of the products and services that Google considers dangerous and that you should avoid in your ads and destinations. Do such terms also affect the ranking of business website that legally offers such products? Uh, so from, from a Google search point of view, I'm not aware of kind of a list of products that we would consider to be problematic. Uh, I, I do believe on the Google Ads side that there are certain products where uh, the ads team, for whatever policy reason, doesn't want to allow advertising for. But that's completely separate from Google Search. And from at least from, from what I'm aware of, uh, if you mention these things on your website, they can appear in the normal search results. There's nothing really blocking that. And you, you definitely see that if you just try to search for fireworks, you will find sites that sell you fireworks. Um, let's see. We're about to launch a new e-commerce site, and we're debating on how many pages we should initially go live with. Uh, since it's a new domain, I'm worried a bit that Google will only index a small portion of the website at first. What would be the best approach here? Uh, so I think we have this covered in our e-commerce documentation, actually. We looked at this uh, with, with a variety of teams. And I, I think everyone had like, a different idea of which, which approach to take. And I think we have maybe three options or so covered in the documentation. So I, I would double check that. It depends a little bit on what you want to achieve and how that that should happen. Uh, also, with regards to e-commerce sites, if you're trying to get these products into Google Merchant Center for Google, Google Shopping, I, I think it's still called Google Shopping, uh, then you might have different considerations than if you're just launching a website on its own. Uh, but the, the documentation that we have for e-commerce sites, I would definitely check that out. Um, let's see. There's just one question I want to grab quickly before I switch over to, to you folks again, because like you're so patient. Thank you. Um, and it, it's a long question, but I'll just take the first part uh, to make it a bit easier. So it, it's a food blogger. And the first question is, Google said uh, that there's a maximum of 16 words uh, that you can use in your alt text. And uh, the question is kind of like, does Google read the rest of my alt text? And like, what does this mean for usability? And uh, I, I think the, the important part here is we don't have any guidelines with regards to how long your alt text can be. Uh, so from a Google search point of view, you can put a lot of things in, in the alt text for an image if that's relevant for that particular image. Uh, when it comes to the alt text, we primarily use that to better understand the image. Uh, so if someone is searching for, I don't know, in Google Images for something that kind of matches the alt text, then we can use that to understand that your image is relevant for that alt text on that specific page. That's kind of the primary use case of the alt text. We do also use the alt text as a part of the page. But to, to me, that's usually something that is already visible on the page anyway. So it's less something that is critical to the page itself. 
so I would really use it as something that applies to the image. And I would use it for usability reasons and for Google Images to better understand that specific image. And I, I think what might also be worth mentioning is when it comes to Google Images, you don't necessarily need to describe exactly what is in the image, but rather kind of like what this image means for your particular page. Uh, so if you have a picture of a beach, you could use an alt text and say, oh, this is a beach. But you could also say, this is the beach in front of our hotel, or uh, this is the beach that we took a photo off when we were doing a chemical cleanup. And kind of those intents are very different. And people would be searching in different ways in Google Images to find more information there. And kind of giving that extra content, uh, context also always makes sense, in, in my opinion. OK, um, lots of questions left. I'll try to add some comments uh, as replies there as well. Uh, but maybe we'll switch over to some live questions. And I have a bit more time afterwards, too, if uh, any of you want to stick around. Uh, let's see. Shun, I think you're up next. Uh, hi, John. Hi. And I, I have a question that will be a little bit similar to the, the one you answered earlier. But it's regarding the HTML and JavaScript, the classic one. And uh, I have, let's say, I have an HTML uh, with uh, there are some parts of which is hidden by CSS display norm. And when a user first land on the page, that is hidden for some reason, UI reason to simplify the UI. And then that, that hidden contents can be only seen when a user click the button and then the JavaScript, JavaScript runs, JavaScript click events runs, and that JavaScript change the status of the CSS and then the user see the contents. So my question is, it looks a little bit gray zone for me because that uh, since the Google can never run any JavaScript events, so I wonder if the contents, which as is hidden by CSS when a user first land on a page, can be the target of the Google evaluation or not? It, it can still be indexed. So. Uh -huh. That's something, if, if it's in the HTML itself in, in the DOM when the page is loaded, then we can use that for indexing. Uh, if it's something that needs a JavaScript event to then fetch something from the server and then display that, then that's not something that we would recognize. But if it's in the DOM, if it's in the HTML, and it just goes from being uh, hidden to visible, that's, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. OK, so is, is the variation would be the same as the one that is not hidden, or? Probably. I mean, it, it's always hard to compare like how mm -hmm. things will rank in, in uh -huh. kind of in, in the end. But my, my assumption is that it would be pretty much the same. I think it's also something from a user point of view you might want to watch out for, and that's more kind of like when someone goes to your web page and uh, after, after it's being shown in search. And that is essentially that if you're promising the user something, it's, it's a good idea to show, it, show the user that when they go to your web page. Uh, so we, we apply that when it comes to things like intrusive interstitials or kind of like too many ads on a page. If they go to your page, they should be able to find what they were looking for. And if this is additional content that you're providing, which is not kind of the primary reason why they're going to your page, then that's, that's fine. That's kind of like a usability way to 
give more functionality to a page. However, if the primary content is blocked like this, then that's something where I would expect the users to be a little bit unhappy if they go there and they don't realize, oh, this is how I get that piece of information. Uh -huh. uh, OK, so what, what would the case that only when we see the contents to the user from the PC and never can see in the contents from the smartphone? Um, With Actually, the, con the element itself is embedded on HTML, but yeah. hidden. And the user can never have a chance to undo the hidden. I, I don't think we, we would separate that out. Uh -huh. Because so. some, sometimes that's also just a, a usability uh, mechanism that, that sites use, where uh, you have essentially a responsive design. And within the responsive design setup, for certain screen sizes, you, you hide something like the sidebar. And from our point of view, that's fine. Mm -hmm. OK, thank you. Sure. Thank you, John. Thank you. Cool. OK, uh, Joy. I have two questions. So hopefully, we won't take up so much time. Uh, so the first is, does a portion of content? It's really hard to hear you. Sorry. Uh, can you perhaps speak closer to the microphone? Is that better? Yes. Perfect. Sorry about that. I have two questions that I hope won't take too much time. Um, so, does the portion of content created by a publisher matter? And I mean that in the sense of affiliate or maybe even sponsored content. Um, context is. There's a DigiDay newsletter that went out today that mentioned that publishers were concerned that if you have, let's say, 40% of your traffic or content as commerce or affiliate, your website will become or considered by Google a deals website. And then your authority may be um, dinged a little bit. Is there such a thing that's happening in the ranking systems algorithmically? I, I don't think we, we would have any threshold like that. Um, partially because it's it's really hard to determine a, a threshold like that. You can't, for example, just take the number of pages and say, this is this type of website because it has 50% pages like that, uh, because th the pages can be visible in very different ways. So, sometimes you have a lot of pages that nobody sees, and uh, it, it wouldn't make sense to judge a website based on something that essentially doesn't get shown to users. Okay, and I guess this may be like a part B to that. Um, how much does it matter if a publisher is outsourcing content um, for scalability reasons um, versus having content created by staffers, staff writers? Um, I, I I don't think for for the most part that we would differentiate. It's more about the quality of the content overall. Uh, so that's something where if you outsource the content and then you get good content back, then you publish that good content. Uh, so from from that point of view, I I wouldn't say that outsource content versus in-house content is kind of different by definition when, when it comes to the overall quality. How would you even know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think there are ways that Google would pick that up, especially if you label that 
I think that's pretty easy to pick up. I, 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 I contest that. If you, you're talking about Google understanding an employment contract at that point, if I've got a staff member sitting in my office full time or one sitting, sitting at home being paid by the hour, I don't see how you'd ever know who's written anything. Fair enough. It could be wrong. I have been before. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I don't think, yeah. I, I mean, it, it would be different if you're aggregating content from other sites. That's something which, which we could pick up on. But if it's really just someone in-house or someone from an agency writing the content for you, it's it's the content that you're publishing. Okay, all right, thank you, appreciate it. Cool. Okay, uh, let me take a break here and pause the recording. It's It's been good having you all here. Thank you all for joining. Thanks for submitting so many questions. I have a bit more time afterwards, so we can go through the millions of people with raised hands as well. Um, and we, we can see what, what we end up with. Uh, thanks for joining. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're welcome to join one of the next Office Hour Hangouts. Uh, we do these about weekly. Usually, I announce them a couple days ahead of time in the community section. You can drop your questions there, or you can watch out for the link and join us live if you'd like to. All right. And with that, let me find the button to pause.